Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 16. It's on page 70 if you're following along in your pew Bible. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if, we only, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Thanks, Ray. So there is this fantastic commercial about fantasy football. Any fantasy football folks here? It's great. I love this. If you don't know what fantasy football is, fantasy football is... It's this game that you can play where you get to virtually draft players. Uh, you, you, you form your own football team, basically, uh, you, and you form it by drafting real players from the real NFL, and you form your team. So there's a draft at the beginning of the year, and then you've got your players for that year, and then you get points depend on how each of those players does in their actual games, right? So there's a 
at the beginning of the year, there's a, there's a draft, a fantasy draft. You've got to pick your number one fantasy draft, right? And there's this great commercial where it, this, this guy starts in, uh, and he's sitting on his couch with his friends, and somehow he gets a little bit confused about uh, what fantasy he's supposed to tell them about. And, uh, and so it starts off with him saying he's sitting on the couch, and, he's, and he goes, just start fresh someplace, someplace else, no job, no family, just walk away, just walk away. That's my number one fantasy. And his friends are like, no, no, your number one fantasy pick, who do you want to pick? He's like, oh, whoops. But I think that that guy's story, that sense of his fantasizing about, here's what he's fantasizing about, is about living a completely different life than the one that you're living now. I think it's a great commercial because we can all relate to it. And we all sometimes, I think, have this, this, this fantasy of, boy, if, my, if, I could just, if I could just live my life differently than the way I'm living it now, and you, you have this vision of what that life would look like. And I think that's true for all people. That at, at some degree or another, we find ourselves fantasizing that way. I think this is especially true for Christians. I think this is especially true for Christians, that Christians can find themselves fantasizing about living life differently than they are. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Exodus, and we've been going through the book of Exodus for a couple of months now, and so we're going through the book of Exodus, and the title for this series is Exodus. Isn't that creative, right? Yeah. Wow. Where'd you come up with that, Kevin? I know you're wondering, okay, what's the deal with this, Kevin? Uh, did you just get lazy, and you we're going through this thing for months, and you couldn't come up with a title other than Exodus? Because usually I do, right? Like when I did a series on the book of Colossians, it was called Overall. I didn't call it Colossians. It was called Overall. And, and when I did a series on First Peter, I called it Strange. That was the title. And, and what I try to do when I come up with these titles is find a, a slogan or a phrase or a word that captures what I think is the essence of perhaps the main theme of the book or at least a main theme that I'm going to be driving home throughout that series. So with Colossians, it was overall God's supremacy, Christ's supremacy over all things. Uh, when we did First Peter, uh, I called it Strange, and it was talking about how Living as a Christian in this world can feel a little bit strange sometimes. So the question is, why not Exodus? And here's why. Because the word Exodus does, it tells you exactly what the book is about. It's about an Exodus. It's about deliverance. The book of Colossians is not about the Colossians. The book of First Peter is not about Peter. But the book of Exodus is about the Exodus, that's what this book is. That is the theme, that God is a God of Exodus. God is a God of deliverance. And you discover when you go back into chapter 3 of the book of Exodus that that, that is the, the defining quality of God. That's what he wants people to think about when they think of God. When you think of God, what do you? Th- what is the first thing that you think of? And what we discover in the book of Exodus is God wants you to think of him first and foremost as a God who delivers, as a God who rescues. That's, who, that's his defining characteristic. Like, like when you think of Wayne Gretzky, you think hockey, 
When you think Steve Jobs, you think Apple or iPhone. When you think Mark Hamill, you think Luke Skywalker. Or probably you don't even know who Mark Hamill is, but he is Luke Skywalker. That's, that's what he is, right? That's what, if you know of him, that's what he's known for, right? is Luke Skywalker. And, and God wants us to, to see him as a God of deliverance. That's what he is at his very core, his very essence. And, and listen, that, that is why the God of the Bible is for everyone. Because everyone needs deliverance. Everyone needs this. I, I, I referenced uh, Charles Hobbes last week. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. That's his summation of human existence. Life is tough. And you know what? Honestly, life is tough even when you live in Bergen County, which is one of the most blessed uh, you know, areas in the world. It's still tough. Life is still tough. We need a God of deliverance. This is why the God of the Bible is for everyone. We need deliverance. Now, here's what, we, what emerges as you go through the book of Exodus and then into, further into the Bible. What you discover more and more is that what we need is deliverance. Ultimately, ultimately what we need is deliverance from dependence on other things than God. That's really what we need deliverance from, is deliverance from our dependence on things other than God. We find that with the Israelites. You see, the Israelites had become dependent on Egypt. If you think about how did they get, so, okay, how did this all go down here? So, in Genesis, they find themselves uh, in a fam- there's a famine throughout the region. And so, because of that famine, they're driven to Egypt, and Egypt is actually the place that rescues them. God uses Egypt to rescue them, to provide for them, and they become dependent upon Egypt. But then as time goes on, the very place that had provided for them, the very place that saved them, begins to enslave them. And that's an important principle to learn from their story there, is that oftentimes the things that God uses to save us can end up enslaving us. The things God uses in this world to save us. Let me give you an example. So you're in financial straits. You're in financial difficulties. And and so you pray, God, help me. I need a job. I need a job to help my financial situation. And God answers that prayer. And he gives you this job and, and pulls you out of that financial stress. And then 10 years later, you never see your family. You're never home for any games, you're never home for anything because your work has become, you're dependent upon your work now. That has become your idol. The very thing that God used to save you then enslaves you and you can't, you can't live without it. John Mayer puts it this way. He says, the same drink that gets me out the door is the same drink that puts me on the floor. Oftentimes, the very thing that gets us going somewhere becomes the very thing that puts us down in the ground. We become dependent on things, even good things that God gives us to save us. Egypt is a case study on idolatry. You discover here the Israelites' relationship to Egypt. Uh, It's it's this love-hate relationship that they have with Egypt. What we discover in this passage is they, they love Egypt, right? They're, oh, my gosh, Egypt was great. We, sat, we had pots of meat. Everything was, you know, they have this incredible, we want to go back to Egypt. We love Egypt. We love Egypt. 
But they hate Egypt too, right? This is why they were crying out because they were held in slavery. So there's this love-hate relationship, right? This is what idolatry is like. It's like the alcoholic who sometimes reaches out for help and sometimes reaches for the bottle. It's this love-hate relationship that's being played out in the lives of the people of Israel. And they need to be delivered from their dependence upon Egypt. What God has come to deliver us from is deliverance from things other than God. To deliver you from your dependence on your body image. To deliver you from your, your need for continual financial prosperity or maybe just the need to, to keep up with the Joneses, keep up with those around you to maintain your level of, of, uh, of, of lifestyle. God's come to deliver us from our dependence on success that need to be successful and for people to see us as successful. God is a deliverer, a deliverer who's come to deliver us from dependence on other things. And so we've been looking at, at this over the last several weeks, looking at the story of the people of Israel and seeing him to be a God of deliverance. Now, what emerges here is this is the question that I think this seeks to answer for us today, is what, what about life after deliverance? What about life after deliverance? What about you, you, you come to know God, you, you come to see him, you come to turn to him, you come to realize your need for God in your life, you, you realize your need for him to deliver you from something that you are too attached to. And so he comes into your life, and, and you find a sense of freedom from that. What about life after deliverance? And that's what I think we find here. The Israelites, they have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt, and now we get a picture of life after deliverance. And I'm going to highlight for you four dimensions of life after deliverance that emerge from this text and from the overarching narrative of Scripture to which this points. Here's, here's the first dimension of life after deliverance. We will be tempted to think that the old way apart from God is better. We will be tempted to think that the old way apart from God is better. And that's what's going on here in verse 3, right? The Israelites, the Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out here into the desert to starve, right? So, so they're, they're thinking about Egypt. They're like, you know what? Life was better back then. Life was actually better apart from God's provision. We'll be tempted to, to think that way. See, we're going to face that same temptation, and it's going to look like this for us. When you, when you start to to follow God, when you've been delivered, you start to follow God, you start to follow the way that he says leads to life. That's what you do. When you're delivered and you come into a relationship with God, you start seeking to follow him and the way that he says will lead to life. And what he says will lead to life is things like this. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he says things like, if anyone wants to be the first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. That's what it means to follow God. That's the, the road that God takes us on. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last 
and the servant of all. He says things like, love your neighbor, love your enemy, turn the other cheek. And there are times when you're going to be tempted to say, what? I don't know about that. I don't know that I want to do that. And you'll start fantasizing. Like our fantasy football friend. Fantasizing about, about you know, what would it be like if I, if I stopped, you know, trying to follow the ways of God? Start, start fantasizing about what that life might look like. Start fantasizing about shirking your responsibilities because so much of what it means to die to yourself is to take responsibility, to love others, to care for others. And, and the example of this, this individual fantasizing about football, right? Leave his job, leave his family, leave responsibility. Just go and do what he wants to do. Just let it go. Let, you know, live for myself, not die to myself. I love that commercial because I think it really does get at the heart of the challenge that every Christian has. And that is that we can be entertained by this fantasy of just indulging what we want in the moment and shirking our own responsibilities. Now, why, why do we do this? Well, why are we tempted to do this? And here's why. Here's what emerges from the story of the people of Israel, <clears throat> is that when we fantasize about the old way, the other way apart from God, we exaggerate the good, and we ignore or forget the bad. We exaggerate the good of this other life, and we ignore or forget the bad, right? So they, they exaggerate the good. Like, look what they say here. Again, verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Really? Are you sure about that? I mean, they were slaves in Egypt. I mean, meat was a, a delicacy in the ancient world. It wasn't like something that usually people ate all the time. And slaves, is that really what it was like for you guys in Egypt? They're exaggerating the good. They're, they're fantasizing about what it was like. We fantasize about maybe what our life used to be like or what we think it would be like if we went somewhere else. But we're really just exaggerating it. We're exaggerating the good, and then we forget the bad. Um, I love there's this passage in verse in the book of Numbers, which also tells the story of the people of Israel in this time period. And, and listen, listen to what it says here. Same time, same season, in the desert, and they say this, If only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Okay, I don't know if they really had melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but there's a key phrase here. All this food that we had at no cost. Excuse me? Have you forgotten about the slave masters beating you? That, that's how Moses got in trouble in the first place, is that he saw the slave masters beating one of his fellow Hebrews. Have, at no cost? You see, we exaggerate the good... And we forget the bad. And we start to fantasize about a life apart from God. This is very easy to do. Start fantasizing about a different life. And you see all the good things, but you're really not seeing it very clearly. Oftentimes, one of the ways in which we do this is we tend to focus on the short-term versus the long-term. Short-term happiness versus long-time happiness. Here's the reality. Oftentimes, living a life apart from the ways of God is really fun. In the short term. 
oftentimes just going away from what God would want you to do is really fun. It is, right? Sin, you know, there, there's a passage where it talks about Moses. He, he, he went away. He decided not to enjoy the pleasures of sin in the short term. It's this verse that talks about exactly that in, in the book of Hebrews, where it's, it's saying, yeah, you know, going away from God, sin can be fun, right? We just acknowledge that in the short term. But in the long term, it's disastrous. We exaggerate the good, we forget the bad. But the point that I want to highlight simply is this. Life after deliverance will involve temptation. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You find yourself, wait a minute, I, I, came, to know, I came to know God. I came to this relationship with God. Why am I struggling? Why am I tempted to go away? No, don't be surprised by that. The story of people, the story of the people of Israel is one that demonstrates that that's often what life after deliverance looks like. We will be tempted to think that the old way apart from God is better. So, life after deliverance. Secondly, secondly though, God will be gracious to you when you complain. God will be gracious to you when you complain about your circumstances. All right, this is what we discover here. The Israelites here, they complain, and they're incredibly ungrateful. We need to realize just the extent of their ungratefulness. Uh, This is, okay, so this is in verse 3, chapter 16, verse 3, that they start complaining about their situation. Now, think about how the book of Exodus is laid out. Basically, you've got, in Exodus 1, we, we begin to hear about the plight of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, uh, then in chapter 3, the calling of Moses. Moses is called to go and, and be used by God to deliver them. Then basically from chapters 5 through 11 is sort of this battle between God and the Pharaoh, the plagues and all that kind of stuff. And then in 12, he takes them out of Egypt. And then in chapter 14 is this great climactic passage where they're at the Red Sea and God delivers them out of the Red Sea. And then in chapter 15, listen to this, chapter 15 is just a song of worship. And the Israelites just praise God over and over again. I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is a warrior. Uh, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Uh, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? I mean, I'm just picking randomly verses from chapter 15 that are all about just celebrating the goodness and the glory of God and how he rescued them. That's chapter 15. And then immediately in chapter 16, they're complaining. They're like, like you take your kids to Disneyland, and they're just, I mean, they're just so happy, and then in the car ride on the way home, all they do is complain. And that's what's going on here. I mean, they've just, they've just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, celebrating the glory of God, and then immediately after that, they complain. But, but you know what's more remarkable than how quickly they complain? is how gracious God is. Again, verse 3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Look at the very next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God is gracious when we complain. 
You know, I do want to highlight, however, there's something here we need to see. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God. We need to see this here. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with crying out to God. Um, the book of Psalms is replete with psalms of lament. And psalms of lament are psalms in which we cry out to God and, and you know, God, where are you? God, answer me in my plight. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. All of this, this sort of thing. And, and I think this is really important. Sometimes we feel like, you know, we should just kind of keep those thoughts to ourselves. But no, the Bible, actually, there's a place for crying out to God with whatever your challenges and your difficulties are. Psalm 22 is, really brings this to a focus with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus himself prayed that psalm when he was on the cross. So there's a precedent here where, where it's, it's perfectly fine to cry out to God and turn to him when you're in need. But that's different than complaining. Because notice they're complaining, they're, they're not praying to God. They're just complaining. They're not asking for God's deliverance. They're just complaining about their situation. And actually, one of the things we notice here is they don't even have the guts to complain to God. They complain to Moses, and they say, Moses, you brought us here. You brought us here. And then in verse 8, he kind of, he kind of well, actually, guys, this wasn't my idea, man. I was just a shepherd. I didn't want to do this in the first place, right? It wasn't me that brought you out here. Look what it says in verse 8. Talking about Moses and Aaron, Moses says this, Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. I think that's important. There's something that emerges from that. That generally speaking, when we complain about just about anything, we're really complaining about God. When you complain about your boss, you complain about challenges that you're having in your marriage, there's a sense in which you're really complaining about God. Because this is God's world. God is sovereign over all things. God can intervene at any moment in any situation. And when we find ourselves not happy with our situation, there is a sense in which when we complain, we're really complaining about God. And so these relates at least need to have the honesty to recognize this. But here's what we need to see. Even when we complain, God is gracious to us. Even when we complain, even when we don't, you know, turn to God in prayer, even when we just complain, he's gracious to us. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I mean, I, as I was praying through this this week, this is very encouraging to me because I'm a complainer. <laughs> I really am. I mean, I don't always voice my complaints, right? I, I remember, I think it was Ray was saying that he, he thinks that I tend to be fairly calculated in what I say, <laughs> I tend to think through what I'm going to say. But, I'm, you know, I, what's going on inside? Who knows what's going on inside, right? I mean, I, I, I complain. Sometimes it comes out. My wife will tell you that if I'm, compl- I, if I'm complaining about anything, I'll often just tell it to her, and then she has to deal with my complaining. Uh, so I don't, but I don't always voice it, but it's there. I'm a complainer. But God is gracious to me. He's gracious to me even when I complain. Summary of life after deliverance. Life after deliverance has these four characteristics. The first one is that you will be tempted to want to go back to the old way apart from God. But secondly, God will be gracious to you in the midst of your complaining. Thirdly, God will provide for you 
and you will be encouraged to discover that every moment of provision is a gift from God. Let me break that down. First of all, in life after deliverance, first, we just need to see this. God will provide for you. We need to see that. The, 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 you know, we, we, tend to, we tend to do, well, we tend to do exactly what the Israelites do here. When things get difficult, we freak out, right? When life gets hard, when challenges come our way, we freak out. That's what the Israelites are doing here. And we can relate, I can relate to that. Things are getting difficult for me. I freak out. But what we need to see from this passage is that when things get difficult, even after life, after, God will provide for you. That's the message that ultimately emerges from this. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget when Laura and I first moved here, which is almost 10 years ago now. We were, we'd only been married for about a year, and we went to dinner with Steve and Wanda here in we were just chatting with them and kind of asked them, you know, what's the key to marriage? How do you guys do it? And I remember Wanda, without even missing a beat, she just goes, this too shall pass. I mean, not, I mean, just like she'd been waiting for me to ask that question, this too shall pass. Right? Which is another way of saying God will provide. God will get you through this. Life after deliverance, God will provide. And you will be encouraged to discover that every moment of provision is a gift from God. Now, what, what I mean by this is, okay, what's going on? In verses 11 through 12, the Lord said to Moses, I, I heard the grumbling of the Israelites tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Right? So quail will come at night, bread in the morning, you will be filled with bread. Now, it, the, the language here is intentional. In the evening and in the morning. And, and most scholars agree that there's a literary device here going on here. This is called a merism, where you have two opposing things that represent completion when they come together. So, for example, in the book of Genesis, you find these merisms all over the place in the creation account. And it's a way of, of saying God, God's creation is complete. God's creation is in order. So you've got heaven and earth, land and sea. Male and female, these opposing uh, entities that, that in coming together represent a wholeness. And in the same sense, when he says that I will provide for you meat in the evening and bread in the morning, it's a way of saying I will provide for you completely. That your provision will be, and I, and I think what we need to see from this is now we need to put on our, our, our lens here and realize then that every moment of provision is a gracious gift from God. We need to come to, to realize this. Every time you fill up your gas tank with gas, that is a gracious provision from God. Every time you get a package from Amazon, the 17 times you get packages from Amazon tomorrow, it's a gracious provision from God. Every time you step into Trader Joe's, oh my gosh, they are renovating Trader Joe's. It's going to be unbelievable. There is going to be some serious manna and quail going on in that Trader Joe's. It is a gracious provision from God. It is a gracious, every moment of, of provision is a gracious gift, and it's a gracious gift from God. And that's important to notice here. I mean, God is intentional in this passage about reminding us that this is from Him. And the way He does that is by not allowing them to keep more than a day's worth. Right? That's what he, he provides it each day. And he says, don't keep any, don't save any. 
Just wait for me to provide the next day, except for on the sixth day, because there he's teaching them a lesson about the Sabbath. But every other day, it's like, no, I'm going to provide for you each day. And the reason that he's doing that is so that they don't forget where this is actually coming from. And we know that if you, if you look in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, similarly, it recounts the, uh, the people of Israel going into Egypt and... And they're going to go. So what happens is they go from this 40-year period of wandering around and God's providing manna and quail for them. And then they come into the promised land, and now they're going to start, like, working here. They're going to start digging, you know, planting crops. They're going to move to agriculture and all of this kind of stuff. They're going to start needing to use their hands to provide for themselves. And there's this really interesting passage in in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where he says, listen, listen, I've been providing for you this way. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to start cultivating this land, but here's the thing, you're going to start thinking that you're the one that's doing it. You're going to start thinking that your hand, and so then he says in Deuteronomy 17, 18, he says something like, uh, you may say to yourself, by the power of my hands, I have produced this wealth for me. And God says, no, I am the one who gave you the ability to do that in the first place. He's like, even your ability to cultivate the land is a gift from me. This is so important, right? Because it's so easy for us. I, I think, to me, that passage is so, uh, I think, so profound because, because especially in our day and age, there's, there's sort of this mindset that, you know, well, you know, we're now in the post-industrial age, and, and in previous times, you know, people thought they really needed God because they, they needed God to provide for them. But, but now in the post-industrial age, you know, we can, we're, we're so wise and smart that we can do it all ourselves. We don't need God's help anymore. And I'm like, God addressed that same issue 3,000 years ago. That them coming out of the desert and coming into a, a land where now they're going to have to cultivate themselves, it's the same issue that we deal with now. And the issue is, is that we love to take credit for God's provision. We want the credit for God's provision. But life after deliverance is a life in which God will encourage you to realize that every gift or every moment of provision is a gift from God. So summary of life after deliverance, first of all, you'll be tempted to think the old way is better. Uh, You'll complain, but God will be gracious to you when you complain. God will provide for you. He will provide every moment. Every moment you will be be encouraged to realize that every moment is a gracious gift from God. And finally, because of Christ, full provision is in your future. You know, it's interesting as we read through this because the story of Israel in the desert is still our story. It's still our story. There's this sense in which we are still in the desert. You know, if you read on in the story of the people of Israel, they are taken out of the desert into the promised land. But then when you read about their life in the promised land, it doesn't look so promising after all. You read through it, and then later on you discover that they, they come to see themselves as still sort of in the desert, and you, you come to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus comes along, and his disciples ask him, hey, hey, teach us how to pray. And what does he say? He says, well, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. And that's key because he's making an allusion to the Israelites wandering in the desert. And by implication, he's saying, you're still kind of in the desert. That's the life that you're, you're, we're still in the desert. But there will come a time when you won't be. In John chapter 6, let me just read for you. In John chapter 6, if I can find the gospel of John in front of all of you, I can do it. John chapter 6, and the crowds are surrounding Jesus. Jesus is surrounded by crowds. And it's interesting, this one, one, uh, one part, uh, listen what Jesus says to the crowds. He says, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. Now, the word choice is, is intentional here. Grumbling. It, it's a reference. He's like, you're just like the Israelites were in the desert. You're grumbling just like they were. But then listen to what he says here. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Friends, the heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has come and has demonstrated that when we put our faith in him, in the God who revealed himself to us in Jesus, that our destiny is the same as Jesus. And of course, Jesus' life was one in which he went to the cross. He went to the place where all provision was taken from him. But complete deprivation of provision ultimately led to complete fullness of provision. The heart of the Christian faith on which our faith rests is that Jesus died, but he rose from the grave. And our hope is in that, that because he rose from the grave, not even death can take away our provision. Friends, there, there, is not, there is nothing else in this world that can offer you that. There's, there's no other world. There's nothing else that can, can offer you the kind of full provision that is ours because of what took place in the person of Jesus. You're not going to find that kind of provision in any of the Democratic uh, candidates for office. You're not going to find that kind of provision in anything that President Trump can offer. You're not going to find that provision through Elon Musk. Elon Musk is all about moving ahead. You might be able to get us to Mars, uh, but I don't think Mars is the promised land. I mean, there's lots of people out there that want to try to find a way to provide for us. And, and the truth is, we should be engaged in those projects. As Christians, I, I'm not saying we should just shouldn't care about any of this. Actually, we really should care. We really should care about politics. We really should care about things that will help our world to flourish. But we're able to do it from a very unique vantage point. And that is that we're not ultimately dependent upon our own success. We can do it because we love the society. We love the world. We can try to make this world a better place, not really because we need it, we have what we need in the person of Jesus, and we know what our future is, but because of that, that actually enables us 
to really love our neighbors and to really work to make this world a better place without our own personal agendas. Yeah, we should, we should be engaged in, in all of these. We should, be, we should be concerned about economic growth. We should be concerned about the environment. We should be concerned about all the kinds of things that can hinder provision for our world. But we can do it with a little bit of detachment because we know that our ultimate hope and our ultimate provision is in Jesus. Friends, th- this is why we gather on Sunday morning. It's, it's this big, right? We, we need to see it's, it's this big. We come to celebrate a God who, in the person of Jesus, has guaranteed us complete and full provision for all of eternity. That's what we celebrate. We, 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 don't, we don't come here just so that I can give you some good advice on how to live this way or that way. I mean, I don't know. You, what do I know, really? We're not here just to get a little religion in your life, you know, like, you know, it's good to have a little religion. It's nice, you want to have a little religion in your life, you know, you, like, you want to, you've got your exercise, and you want to eat right, and you want to have a little religion. We're not here for a little religion in our lives. We're not here to just instill some nice moral values. No, we're, we're here to proclaim that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have complete provision guaranteed for us. And I think this is what it leads to, just to, to sum it all up. What does life after deliverance look like? What, is, what does it look like? Gratitude and hope. We are a people of gratitude and hope. Gratitude. We are grateful for, for how God has delivered us, has pulled us out from, from so many things in our lives. And I know so many of you can, can recount stories. Where would your life be? If God had not come into your life, I can only imagine where my life would be, and it would not be good. And so we're, we're grateful for God. We're grateful for what He's done in our lives. We're grateful for how He continues to provide for us on a day-to-day basis. But we're also a people of hope. We realize that we are still in the desert, but we, we long for that day when God will come and He will make things new. We pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your grace. God, we come to you as, as people in very different places in our lives, Lord. Um, maybe we have been following you and seeking you for many years. Maybe we're here just entertaining, exploring who you are. Some of us come here having been in church for many, many years. For some of us, maybe the very first time, Lord, we pray that you would meet us right where we are. You would provide for us precisely what we need. God, that you would shape our hearts to be hearts of gratitude and hearts of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.